the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. All right, world. Welcome back to Ourgasm. This is the podcast where we talk about decolonizing sexuality and gender. And this is the first episode of our second season. We're officially a podcast now. Yeah, we're a thing. <laughs> we committed our time to do a whole season, and now we've committed to committing our time to do a second season. This is very exciting. Um, yeah. As a commitment phobe, I am very proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit of like a rose-colored flag there. It's not quite red, <laughs> but it's definitely not white either. Um, anyway... My name is Lindsay G. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, or hers. Um, I'm also pretty comfortable with they and them. I am more or less a sort of word person. I am primarily a writer and editor and also a publisher. I have worked in multiple aspects of the writing and publishing industries for a, at least 10 years now, <laughs> probably much longer than that. Um, I'm the co-founder of Oneshi Press, where I publish creator-owned independent comics uh, created by myself and others. Um, and I am the author of Watching Porn, which is a memoir about my time as a journalist um, in and around the adult entertainment industry. Um, and through all of that, I have become something of a a sidelines expert um, on particularly pornography um, with regards even more particularly to gender and feminism. So that's kind of my whole deal. And uh, now my beautiful co-host, will you please introduce yourself? Well, hello. That was an excellent intro. Uh, I learned so much about you. <laughs> my name is Lenny Peppers. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am Northern Cheyenne in Crow from Eastern Montana. Uh, my Indian name is Watched Over. I am a writer and artist. I say that I'm a multimedia story worker <laughs> is, is how I describe like all of the things that I do. That's beautiful. I love that as a title. Uh, and then I also am working on my fifth degree. I'm working on a PhD in decolonizing shit, like I don't want to get too deeply into what it is, but it's a PhD in decolonizing shit. So uh, most of my degrees center around Native American studies. I have a journalism degree, uh, but I, most, I work mostly in Native American resistance and decolonizing around art and media. Damn, that's cool. I think so. I like to think I, it's cool. I think just being able to say most of my degrees is like, you're already <laughs> in such rarefied, awesome territory. Um, <laughs> so I, just listening to you introduce yourself made me realize, like, I never introduce myself as like, hi, I'm Lindsay and I am white. Um, because it's like the assumed default in our culture that if you don't mention your background, you're just white. So I'm just going to say for for the sake of being transparent for anyone who wants to know. Um, Literally and figuratively transparent. <laughs> yes, that is very true. I am so white that you can actually see a lot of my veins through my skin. It's kind of <laughs> gross. Like I'm looking at some right now. Um, 
I, I guess uh, my heritage is Irish and German and English. So I am just, you know, generally Northern European and I'm about as white as they come. I have a, a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature um, with a focus on creative writing and a minor in philosophy. And then well, I got a certifi certificate, certificate in publishing from City College of New York back in the day. And that's it. That's it for me. I want to tell you a little bit about our podcast, again, in case you are coming to it in the second season. Um, so the purpose of Ourgasm is to work on decolonizing the concepts of sexuality and gender as they exist in the dominant, mostly American Western culture today. Um, and the way that we're going about doing that is tackling a lot of so far pretty broad concepts um, because the way that we see it, I, I think I speak for both of us, is like pretty much everything about our culture is the result of colonization. And it's all very intimately tied to gender and sexuality and the expressions thereof. Um, so we're kind of looking at historical looks at things, um, indigenous ways of looking at things and more of the, you know, the dominant cultures way of teaching us how to be as people and looking at how patriarchy and colonization have really influenced how we got here. Um, so really the idea is the more you talk about this stuff, the more you get to know about this stuff, the more you can examine your own attitudes and the things that you have been taught and come to believe. So we just kind of talk about all of this stuff. Um, today's podcast is going to focus on polyamory as a viable relationship model. Um, so in order to talk about that, we're probably going to talk about a whole lot of other things. So if you are not polyamorous or that's not really your thing, please keep listening because we're probably going to talk about some things that definitely apply to you. So let's let's talk about like what polyamory is first. Okay. I think that polyamory, the word polyamory I have I have seen in recent years getting thrown around by a lot of different groups of people who are sometimes defining it differently, sometimes just trying to practice it differently. So it's it's a term that I think in practice right now is a little malleable. Um, but my understanding of what polyamory really is, is basically is a consensually non-monogamous relationship structure in which the, the people who have agreed to it are available to or open to experiencing romantic partnerships with more than one person at a time. Totally. And um, for those of who, those who joined in in our first season know that Lindsay and I are actually um, a couple and are in a non-monogamous uh, relationship. Uh, so we have, and, and actually our, our polycule, uh, our group is all we all work together to create this podcast. Uh, yeah, it's like kind of us, beautiful. Yeah, it's our power cue. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I actually prefer the term non-monogamous um, because it's more of like an umbrella term. Mm -hmm. um, the word mono kind of implies that there is only like that two people become one. Mm -hmm. And I think non-monogamy kind of like breaks that apart. Even in my marriage with my husband, before we were 
polyamorous or non-monogamous, uh, we didn't see ourselves as one person or one couple, but like two individual people with two, with individual needs yeah, and individual desires and stuff. And so I think like that really breaks it down. Hmm. That's a really interesting point. Um, but there's a whole lot about monogamy that I'm sure we're going to end up touching on. Um, sort of the, the ways that monogamy doesn't necessarily work for us and may not work for other people. But you're right, like the word itself is it. Yeah, it's like taking two people and turning them into one entity, um, which feels very uncomfortable to me as well. Um, and it also makes me think of something a friend of mine told me once, which is that polyamory is wrong linguistically because poly is a Greek root and amory is a Latin word. So, <laughs> so poly and amory should never go together. Oh, for, okay. For language purists. <laughs> It's like putting like a, a crow word and a Cheyenne word together. It's just exactly. It's weird. Um, <laughs> it's not really a very funny joke, but I think it's kind of cute. Um, but one thing that I have seen in my life um, is people using polyamory as like a shield to shield themselves from the consequences of just bad behavior. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. One of the things about polyamory in particular is that this is this it needs to be consensual behavior for everyone who's involved, you know, um running around behind people's backs and having a lot of sex with other people without without your partner's knowledge. Um and I'm using partners as like the plural with the apostrophe after the s there. Um mm -hmm. that's that's Partners not consensual is. and non-monogamy because if you are doing things without people's consent, there's no consensual in it. So, um, that I have I've seen a lot of things online, and I've heard people say things like, "Oh, it's okay, I'm poly," and it's like, well, polyamory is not necessarily the same thing as promiscuity. There's right. nothing wrong with either of those, but uh, at least the way that I practice polyamory, it's much more of a long-term commitment situation or at least like short-term commitment situation where I am involved in a meaningful romantic way with more than one person at a time. And everybody that I am involved with deserves to know what I'm doing with my time and with my body um, so that I'm not putting anyone at risk uh, for <laughs> right now, COVID most <laughs> first and <laughs> foremost. Um, but I think that a lot of the time, uh, because polyamory has become a little bit of like a buzzword culturally, it can be kind of tossed around in ways that I don't personally agree with. That's all yeah. I'm going to say about that. Uh, which is why, again, I choose to use um, non-monogamy, but I, I actually use, I put the word ethical in front of, in front of it. Uh, it's not a new thing. It's not something that I made up. It's an actual term, ethical non-monogamy which essentially to me means that um, we have to be available uh, to be non-monogamous while at the same time maintaining a maturity level so as to be sensitive to everyone's feelings who are involved. Mm -hmm. And it's tough. I mean, it's not like easy. It's not something you just like jump into and like yeah. it be okay. I mean, the biggest issue that we have had to deal with, of course, is obviously there's always some sort of feelings of jealousy. I mean, we're all humans and we all have feelings. And, and of course, like being able to communicate to that, that to each other. And so 
we know we're allowed to have feelings and we talk about it and we express our feelings with each other constantly, never stopping without end. <laughs> what were we this talking is about constant again? weeping. That's <laughs> our experience has been constant uh, weeping. I, but it is communication though. Like that's what it all comes down to is like yeah. talking to all of our partners about everything all the time. Uh, because even just something small that like a feeling that is small, it doesn't feel like that big of a deal that's overlooked could actually come out to be like a way bigger idea. I mean, yeah. way bigger issue later on that could be avoided if we're all just committed to being open with our feelings from the start. So I think that that's kind of what what I've gotten out of the entire thing is like learning to be a better communicator. Yeah, definitely. And it, it has not always been easy. Because um, one thing that you find in a non-monogamous situation is that everybody has their different, you know, preferences. Everyone has their different love languages, um, which is an idea that I used to kind of like scoff at, like, oh, you need to take the love language quiz, like whatever. But it is really true. You know, different people need different things from their relationships. And sometimes what people need um, can clash within a group of people that are all oh, trying yeah, to totally. negotiate each other's feelings. Um, and it can get, it can get complicated. Um, and it can uh, get it difficult. It will get complicated. Mm -hmm. It probably will be difficult sometimes, but I mean, isn't that like a part of like doing something that's really worth your time is like being in it, even in the times where it's not always yes. like the funnest thing. What Absolutely. would you say my love language is? Hmm. I have no idea what it is. I'm so I think it, I'm trying to remember what all the love languages are now. I'm probably forgetting some of them. So I'm, <laughs> I might get it wrong because I don't remember what they are, but I think it might be words of affirmation. <laughs> I can totally see that. <laughs> One thing that I have definitely come to realize is that my love language is gift giving. Like I love giving people presents. It makes me feel so good. And like, I also enjoy receiving presents, but it's definitely much more the giving part for me to the point where I have had very important people in my life be like, Lindsay, please stop giving me stuff. Like, I literally <laughs> don't have room in my house. So how did you decide on polyamory? For me, it was kind of like a, it was a long and weird road that my particular career made weirder. Um, like, I will be honest with everyone when I tell you that my early adulthood was marked by cheating. I cheated on people, like not, not, not a lot. Like the frequency with which I cheated was not super intense, but I did cheat. Um, even when I was in relationships, they would usually be open to a degree, um, always at my behest. I was like, if we're gonna be far apart, look, <laughs> you gotta know I'm gonna I'm gonna fool around with other people so let's just do it like let's make it official um but even within the bounds of relationships like that I would often have like dalliances that I didn't tell my partners about because I just didn't want to make them mad and it was like an ongoing problem it was not something I was proud of but it was something that kept happening um and because I'm pansexual like my my partners were of various genders and I think that for a long time I thought it was a it was a pansexual thing like oh well if I'm dating a guy then I'm gonna want to cheat with a girl that kind of thing um 
But the more I thought about that, I realized like there was, that wasn't really a good explanation for my behavior. Like there was something else going on. So when I was living in New York, um, after college, I was bored and I was looking for a writing job of some kind, but I didn't have any projects of my own at the time that I wanted to be writing. So I went on Craigslist and I looked in writing gigs and I found this couple who was interested in having someone like ghostwrite a book about their experiences in the New York swinger lifestyle. Um, so I got to know them and they told me a bunch of stories and I was like, I feel like I'm not really getting the full measure of what you're trying to convey to me. So I started going with them to swing parties in New York, which was always an interesting experience because I was not there as a participant. I was there as an observer to write a book. But the couple I was with did not want the people that they were fooling around with to know that I was there like as a journalist because that wouldn't really fly at most of these events. So I always had to like come up with an excuse as to why I was not participating in the action. <laughs> so I had this like whole list of excuses, et cetera. Um, but I went to swing parties for a while and it really, the swinging scene is not the same as the poly scene necessarily. There's definitely some overlap there, but swinging is much more of a like an encounter-based non-monogamy situation um, where, you know, people will switch partners or, you know, have group sex or whatever works for them. Um, and sometimes they will develop longer term relationships with the people that they have encounters with. But like a swinger party is not is not a polycule getting together and everybody having sex with each other. A swinger party is often meeting strangers. Um, and that's part of the excitement of it. So I was exposed to ethical non-monogamy. And I was like, this is really interesting, but it's not it's not for me. This is not what I'm into. And then sort of from there, I sort of expanded my horizons and slowly learned more about different ethically non-monogamous relationship models. Um, and then while I was in a monogamous relationship with my boyfriend at the time, I met a woman who I fell in love with and I more or less announced to my boyfriend, like, I'm dating her, so we are poly now or we're going to have to have a real conversation. And thank God he was like pretty cool with it. It didn't go super well on his end. Uh, it turned out that I thought I was being very ethical about it by openly explaining to him what was going on with me. Um, but he was not being perfectly honest with me about his feelings on the matter. I think he went along with it to avoid losing me, but he really was not cool with it. So turned into a whole conflagration and didn't really go well there for a while. But through the experience of having that relationship years ago, um, I have more or less realized that I think the, the thing about me that often led me to cheat when I was younger was that I am interested in being emotionally and romantically attached to more than one person at a time. And I was looking for that by, you know, having sexual encounters with people outside of my monogamous relationship. I wasn't getting what I wanted out of it, but um, I was trying to find it in a really gross and unethical way. So at this point, as I am 
entering my late 30s, I can say unequivocally that I am, my orientation is polyamorous pansexual. I am an equal opportunity lover. Um, but when I really am into someone, I tend to be, I don't, I don't date many people at a time, I guess is what I should say. Like I tend to be pretty committed to a small number of individuals and that's just how I'm wired. So if anyone out there is wondering, that's my orientation. Cool. Yeah. Um, wow. I just talked for a long time. <laughs> Please tell me your story. <laughs> well, first off, like, thanks for telling your like journey to where you are now. I think that it's really, really important to tell that story and recognize the points that are good for you and the points that are bad for you, like for your own personal growth, which is exactly what I did. I was also um, kind of a cheater, kind of not. Um, I always had like best friends um, growing up that were like just a little bit more than best friends <laughs> while at the same time, like just dating whoever I wanted to date. And it took another like 10 years of like being married to one person uh, for me to be like, oh, I'm polyamorous. I'm like, that's just who I am. Like I need that. And so like, I was always trying to bring like this, like these other people like into my life while I was like monogamously married, but like missing that whole like extra, like falling in love with people, you know, like mm-hmm. finding somebody and falling in love with them. And, but at the same time, like not wanting to be a cheater and like your husband right. or whatever. Uh, so I didn't, I wasn't polyamorous. I was polyamorous before I was married. And then I was married for 10 years and not polyamorous. And then I like came full circle and was like, yeah, I just need to be real with myself. I am attracted to all genders and non-genders. I am um, able to be honest and loving with more than one person in my life. And lucky for me, I married for my second marriage, although I am anti-marriage, <laughs> uh, my best friend who fully gets me and fully understands like exactly where I was coming from and actually hooked me up with Lindsay. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I met uh, this person and well, like basically I met Lindsay and there was instant attraction, but I, I didn't know that Lindsay was polyamorous or um, attracted to other genders as well as uh, because Lindsay had a partner at the same time. And my, my husband was like, you guys like each other. <laughs> and then like convinced us that like we both needed to like hang out and just like get to know each other better. And now I am married to my best friend and also in love with my other best friend. And I think that it's really, really great. Um, oh my gosh, you think we're best friends? That's like, <laughs> yes. Uh, but I came to this lifestyle by like witnessing monogamy fail over and over again. <laughs> I watched it like as an indigenous person living on the reservation consume families and I can look into history and see where it led to the loss of our culture and our language, wow. like where monogamy specifically, and I'll talk about this later, 
in the episode. But um, in addition to that, I also saw the matriarchs, not the men, but the matriarchs of the family demonized in society for a failure of navigating the shortfalls of an already broken system. Whoa. So like examples of this is like teen pregnancy, single motherhood, mothers being blamed for like crime rates and alcoholism and drug use. Yeah. When these issues are clearly due to an arrangement that was forced upon us, they're symptoms of a systematic um, framework of white supremacy and colonialist capital ideologies that plague Indian country to this very day. Oh my God. That was, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. There's a lot that we're going to unpack in there. So that's it. Now here I am with a power cue, and I guess you could just say that I have it all. I have the kids, I have the job, I have the power cue. So you're doing femininity and ethical non-monogamy correctly. Those (laughs) those words. And decolonization. And decolonization. All of those words are very hard to say and we're very good at it. I just want to point that out. (laughs) (laughs) At the time that I was doing, like I was, supposedly I was going to write a book about swingers in New York City. That was what like my mission was when I was going to these swinger parties. Um, And... In order to do that, I read a lot about human evolution, specifically sexual evolution. And a lot of that reading that I was doing was like at least a decade ago at this point. Um, So some of my knowledge that I've carried forward might be a little outdated at this point, but I have done a little bit more research. The thing is, (laughs) I think that monogamy, which is basically, you know, enforced upon us as like the only legitimate way to have a relationship. It's the only type of relationship that is legally recognized in one-on-one marriages. Um, And it's what we see all around us in all media, in most of our parent situations, whether that is ongoing or it's a failed monogamous relationship. Um, Monogamy has been taught as the way that you have a relationship. But if you really look at humans biology and the evolution of human beings there is a lot of evidence to back up the idea that we were basically designed to be slutty and i say slutty in the most loving possible way like whether you have sex with a lot of people or nobody you're awesome and i respect your decisions just so long as you're trying to do it in a way that doesn't hurt anybody you know yes the ethical part of non-monogamy um but yeah human beings like we are designed physically and mentally to seek novelty in sexual situations. That has been like proven over and over again by multiple studies um, over the years. And discussed in our episode on um, political sex scandals, our double episode on political sex scandals. Yeah. Um, So again, I didn't, I didn't do good enough research to have all of the names and all of the names of the books and the studies all on hand, but I will try to provide them in show notes later on. Um, basically, the idea that uh, that Darwin gave rise to back in the 19th century and then other people parroted and expanded upon for a long time was that because men are capable of having babies with many different partners and are not necessarily needed to raise the young after they have implanted their seed, um, 
the idea for a long time has been that men were made to be promiscuous, but because women have a lot to lose by being pregnant for approximately nine months and then having to raise a child for approximately 18 years, that women have lower sex drives because they, like I said, have a lot more to lose by getting pregnant. So the idea has always been men were meant to be promiscuous, women were meant to be monogamous. And I think a lot of our ideas about why monogamy is the right way to be come from that idea that like somehow we're doing women a favor by allowing them to be monogamous like we know they really want to be. Um, but a lot of more recent studies um, and kind of re-looking at the information that we already have but reinterpreting it has shown that like that really, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, so I'm just gonna go through some of the reasoning here. A lot of archeologists, anthropologists, paleontologists, and so on, believe that it's very clear that humans are meant to be polygamous. Um, and polygamous means just having multiple partners. It could be one man with multiple women. And I'm using shorthand for genders here just so that it is you know, quick and easy to understand what I'm saying, but it could be anyone with a penis, anyone with a uterus, and any any gender expression uh, can apply here. Um, mm -hmm. So it could be, you know, one person with a penis, many people with uteruses, could be vice versa. There are different names for these different types of, uh, I guess, non-monogamous setups. Um, but generally speaking, the fact that in humans, men are larger than women is a big clue that we evolved in a polygamous setting. Um, and that's because as mating becomes more competitive, like in, in a species where there are a few men or a few males that do most of the mating with a lot of females, members of the sex who are doing the competing, i.e. men in the situation, tend to be physically larger than members of the other sex. That's just like if you look across most mammalian species, if people are having a lot of sex, <laughs> the men or the males tend to be larger. Also, this is an interesting one, testicle size. The fact that human men have pretty big testicles in uh, relation to the rest of their body, there's a lot of reasons for why this is an indication that we are meant to be polygamous or at least slutty um, that are very graphic <laughs> so i'm not really sure if i'm gonna if i want to go into it here but uh if you're interested in this information i do uh i recommend that you google it there's a lot of info there okay i i hesitate to bring this up because i think that there's probably a lot of flawed science that has gone into these studies however it is worth mentioning i believe that across multiple studies across multiple cultures in multiple places around the world, like with almost no exceptions. Mm -hmm. Studies have shown that people who identify as male at least report having a larger number of sexual partners than people who identify as female. Um, so that it's debatable as to whether that's a nature or a nurture situation, you know, as to whether people who identify as female are less likely to admit that they have had sex with more people because of all of the shame and stigma that is brought against them for that. Um, but the numbers are overwhelming enough that a lot of people have seen that as an explanation for why we are clearly meant to be polygamous and particularly why men are supposed to have sex with 
many partners. Like it's just natural. Every every male identified person just does this. So be okay with it. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> but sort of on the other hand, there is a growing body of evidence that people are sort of re-looking at and reinterpreting and saying, okay, that all may be true, but none of that necessarily means that people who identify as female are meant to have fewer sexual partners. Um, like I said, a lot of what we have come to understand about women wanting to be monogamous and women having low libidos and women not wanting sex as much comes down to us from a bunch of, you know, old white men long ago who were yep. coming from a Eurocentric background who thought that they knew what women were supposed to be. And that is all deeply, deeply steeped in colonization, Catholicism, and the control of women's bodies that comes along with it. So um, I'm just going to present three pieces of evidence. Again, I probably didn't do as much research as I could have, but <laughs> number one, People who are assigned female at birth, um, generally people with uteruses and vulvas, are capable of having multiple orgasms. There are some people with penises who can do this also, kudos to those folks, um, but generally speaking, people who are born with vulvas have much higher and more natural capacity for having multiple orgasms. This is not necessarily evidence of anything, <laughs> but there has been debate for hundreds of years as to whether the female orgasm is even a thing because it's harder to track, right? There have been many people who argued that the female orgasm doesn't exist and so we shouldn't pay attention to it. It's not a big deal at all. Don't even worry about it if you can't figure it out. Um, but <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. We can have orgasms and we can <laughs> probably have more orgasms than most other folks. Um, and the fact that in a species where, like in humans, if somebody gets pregnant, you know, that is a huge liability as far as evolution goes, as far as your survival goes. You know, when, when human females are pregnant, they are not fast. <laughs> they have a harder time getting around. Um, they, can, they can become, I guess ill isn't the right word, but they can become incapacitated quite easily. Giving birth is extremely dangerous in in many places and many times around the world, including here in America today, giving birth is very, very linked to early death. Um, and then, you know, if you have a baby, you are, you are tied to that thing for quite a few years. Humans give birth to much less developed babies than mm -hmm. most other species. So like, it is a huge liability to get pregnant. So uh, if- as a as a person who's been pregnant five times and one of those times with twins, I can fully testify to all of that. Whew, thank God. <laughs> also, is it toxic femininity for me to be like, yeah, I can have more orgasms than most other people? If it is, I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For real. Like the whole thing has always been. So if, if it's, if women are so programmed not to want or enjoy sex because it's so dangerous for them to get pregnant, then why, why can we have so many orgasms? Like, <laughs> yeah, those, these two things do not track in the women don't like sex category um, of thinking. So 
my argument basically is we are capable of having multiple orgasms. Um, we are also capable of having sex with multiple partners because again, people with vulvas can have multiple orgasms, but most people with penises cannot. What does that tell you? <laughs> it tells you that either we're meant to be queer and many of us are, or that if we are having sex with partners who have penises, we are open for business for more than one partner at a time. So that right there, just like at the very basic, let's look at the facts level, implies to me that women are meant to be just as slutty as men. Um, there, there are a whole lot of, um, again, very graphic, um, <laughs> I don't know how to describe this. There are other things that I could go into detail on that are very graphically sexual in nature that I'm not sure I feel comfortable really talking about here, but um, the actual, the, the physicality of what goes on during sex, um, especially when it comes to sperm, um, is very interesting. There's been a lot of talk over the years about sperm wars and how inside the female reproductive system, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that women evolved with the idea that they would have sex with more than one partner in a short space of time. And that the spermatozoa uh, basically were supposed to fight with each other in <laughs> a survival of the fittest kind of war to have access to the egg. A lot of this science is very debatable and has been debated hotly for a long time. So I'm not entirely sure like where current science stands on, the, on all of it. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that women are supposed to have just as much sex as men. We were evolved to do that. And a lot of the arguments that have been made in support of monogamy as like shielding these, you know, poor delicate women who are terrified of sex um, from from the vicissitudes of the real world where men are just these you know thoughtless dicks with no consciences like i believe that science doesn't back any of that up and therefore non-monogamy is a very real very viable choice so here ends my thesis i'm done for the time being clearly the reason why a lot of women have come to not like monogamous sex is because men have abused their privilege when it comes to this or their partners have abused their privilege, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that does come back to like anatomy, you know, like it in a culture that assumes that women's sexual pleasure m might not even exist. And if it does is, is so mysterious and fleeting and really not a part of what women are supposed to be it becomes very easy for men not to prioritize learning what their partners want. In addition to that, a lot of our language is like centered around describing, um, you know, the sexual organs of a uterus haver as being a receptacle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. there's that too. We're definitely going to do an episode on that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so pumped. <laughs> I wanted to start off by talking about a book that I came across in my research called The Importance of Being Monogamous by historian <laughs> uh, Sarah Carter. Quote, this is a direct quote, uh, marriage was a part of the national agenda. 
the marriage fortress was established to guard the Canadian way of life. Uh, she's talking about Canada, mm -hmm. but we discussed in our episode about marriage, how that was also a part of America's national agenda as well. Um, at the same time that monogamous marriage was solidified as ideal and central to both U.S. and Canadian nation building. And, you know, we've been kind of like sister countries when it comes to colonization and nation building and treatment of indigenous peoples. So Canada actually brings forth more writings from actual indigenous people. And hmm. um, so I, I do pull a lot of my um, research for this and all of my other topics out of Canada and Australia and New Zealand because America really kind of sucks on the fronts of like telling indigenous stories yeah. and talking about indigenous history. So indigenous people in both America and Canada were being viciously restrained both conceptually and physically inside colonial borders and institutions that included reservations, residential schools, churches, and missions, which are all designed to kill the Indian and save the man. And so we also established that they used a toned down and positive positively spun rhetoric for a new and better America after World War II hmm. and essentially started what I personally has, have observed as reservations called suburbia in what is known as the concrete jungle. <laughs> so they spun it a different way yeah. and they pushed more money towards that project, but it was essentially the same idea. I mean, look at the film Edward Scissorhands. Yes. Every single house is the same. Everyone has a nuclear family structure. If we juxtapose this same idea along side reservations, the concept is the same except for one glaring difference. Reservations are underfunded. Mm -hmm. This affects everything from infrastructure, like roads or water or sewer or electricity or internet or whatever, to our education systems all the way down to like our nutrition, like basically what we're taking into our bodies. Hmm. And in addition, because natives can never truly own their home due to the US government treating us like incompetence, well, we're clearly not, <laughs> we can't build equity in the houses that we've lived in sometimes for generations. Yeah. In the meantime, suburbia is super funded with right. plenty of money going towards all of the things that we are denied. So, Here's where the entire process gets really violent and really destructive. Uh, keeping in mind that many tribes practice non-monogamy and polygamy, creating like extended kin groups, uh, a part of saving us, quote unquote, from our hedonistic tendencies, as if, uh, meant that they had to push us into pursuing the righteous monogamy monogamous mm. couple-centric nuclear family institution. Right, absolutely. And so it also attempted to break our relationship with the earth and all of our non-human counterparts. And so uh, there is another disconnect from the food and what we're taking into our bodies and the way that we have a relationship with not only each other, but the earth. So this monogamous institution is actually very deeply embedded in indigenous life ways. And so even though we can never own our own land, 
and have to share it with every ancestor we've had since like the 1800s so we can own like a foot of land right we have to remember that like throughout the rest of the country and for us land tenure rights were attached to marriage in ways that tied a woman's Mm. economic well-being to all of that prison that I just mentioned yeah good point uh basically this relationship centers reproduction possession transaction um, extraction and control and here's that money power sex triangle thing again that we Mm -hmm. always come back to yeah it suggests we lay claim to another human being and to hear whatever hashtag relationship goals are supposed to be. <laughs> Essentially, by being ethically non-monogamous, polygamist, pansexual, I am literally breaking down federal policy restrictions on my own people. And these are laws that were passed by Congress. They are laws. <laughs> and yeah. so I guess you could say I'm an anarchist. obviously (laughs) like we can we have an actual picture here of exactly what you were just saying where people have been forced out of like a natural relationship system in kinship group Mm -hmm. and it completely um worked to destroy like I said cultures and languages and relationships with each other and with the earth and we can see where we are right now with all Mm -hmm. of those things um nationwide Yeah, totally. And it really, like the idea of monogamy and the the nuclear family is so limited. It's, it's like, like you said, it's, it's a violent change, like telling people that your relationship structure is not only not legal anymore, but it is inherently bad. Mm -hmm. You are a bad heathenous person if you are seeking sexual relationships with more than one person at a time like outside the bounds of this legal institution that we're forcing upon you absolutely and it and if within that monogamous boundary that you are forced into there are problems if there is abuse if there is you know a lack of communication if there's any of the things that can go wrong and very often do in a relationship when you are sort of siloed in there with this one other person, it is a lot harder to access the means that you need to live a happy and healthy life and maybe get out of that situation. So it really can create these like cesspools (laughs) of, you know, bad things happening. And by tearing down the kinship structure of like the larger non-monogamous family, denying people the support system they're supposed to have yes 100 percent that it's evil it really it really is good i feel like i needed to get that off my chest and i never knew it until just now like it feels like a weight's been lifted off of my shoulders just saying that out loud that is wonderful um i i really there's there's so much that goes into the the modern idea of monogamy as the default right like um 
And like I just said, you know, that can go so wrong. And by the way, I want to point out to anybody listening, like if you are a person who is monogamous and that is the way that you like to be and you're in a monogamous relationship and you're super happy with it, fucking awesome. Like that is great. There is absolutely nothing wrong. Neither of us have any problem with people who are monogamous by nature and pursue relationships that work for them. Like by all means, as long as you're being healthy about it and having all your needs, your needs met. Great. Um, Please don't think that we're like shitting on you because you're monogamous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we said the same thing in the marriage episode. Like if you want to be married and have a big wedding and all that stuff, what it comes down to is like breaking down that triangle of the power, sex, money structure into like something healthier and better for you. Yeah. Um, I do want to touch on the larger poly movement though, like that's happening right now in the world as we speak yeah which we are a part of (laughs) um yeah so yeah like I mean we could get into like the whole history of monogamy being enforced on you know everybody at this point um and I actually am very curious like as a little side note before we move on I wonder Like, I remember a few years back when the gay marriage debate was still a really big deal, and I'm sure it will be again because, God forbid, we move forward in this country. Um, But I remember there being so much emphasis placed on, like, the, the letter of the law saying that marriage is between one man and one woman. And at that point, when we were talking about gay marriage, everybody was focusing on the man and woman aspect of it. But the fact that it is very specifically one man and one woman, I wonder if the wording there became very important specifically when America was forcing natives onto reservations and like enforcing the uh, nuclear family into their way of life. Um, I mean, a lot of like the wording for like big ideas like this really date back to that time frame. And so I'm not going to say that it does, but I'm not going to totally discount that either because of how much of our own law system comes from like basically controlling natives right? <laughs> like how, and, and how that like worked and how to use it to control everyone else. Right. Yeah. Like I never had thought about it before, but while you were just talking, I was like, hmm, that whole one thing seems very suspicious. Like it doesn't really need to be in there, does it? but maybe it did right. so that they could get the results they wanted. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting to think about. The difference is that like polygamous, polyamorous, uh, non-monogamous aren't out there saying that everyone has to live this one way and then making it like economically easier for the main population population to do it this way uh, or to enforce it. Mm-hmm. Like this, that is an example of toxic monogamy Right. Where monogamous are saying that everyone has to live this way and do make it legally, economically easier for people to be married. Like your life is mm-hmm. just a little bit easier if you're married to someone. Yeah. Yeah. There are uh, incentives the, to live this way. Right. Exactly. And so guess what? Forcing ideas on society creates a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And even with that hierarchy, people find ways around monogamy like all the time. 
Right. I, that's one of the, the main things about monogamy that people have been talking about for ages. You know, like monogamy usually isn't really monogamy. Mm-hmm. It is so common for people in monogamous relationships to cheat or to even like open up their relationship to seek like sexual encounters or relationships outside of it. But while still existing on paper as a monogamous uh, I mean, relationship yeah. so you can get tax breaks, etc. There is um, such thing as taking a break, <laughs> you know, <laughs> from your marriage, things like that. Yeah, and that are like much more. I mean, they're not like socially accepted, but they're more socially accepted mm-hmm. than polyamory, for instance. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that coming back around to you know the current poly movement as as a backlash, sort of. Um, it's like, yes, if you're in a monogamous relationship and you and your partner have made an arrangement by which you seek satisfaction or relationships or whatever outside of that arrangement, cool. You know, do you. As long as everybody's happy, as long as everybody's healthy, fantastic. Um, but there are a lot of people like ourselves who have decided that like rejecting the concept of monogamy within our own lives makes more sense and is healthier for us. Um, And I think that's just kind of the result of a lot of people having similar experiences to ours, realizing that there is a movement happening that we can kind of be a part of, or just realizing that like the bonds of a, you know, two people monogamous relationship are not doing it for us and we want something different. Um, It's becoming more common. And I think that probably largely by way of the internet it's becoming more understood in the mainstream also um although according to my research uh there have been previous sort of poly um movements mm-hmm. and so i i looked it up it said that the phrase polyamory itself was coined in 1990 so it's a pretty new word mm-hmm. but the concept of ethical non-monogamy as like a movement goes back way farther Um, And I think that the first wave was somewhere around the time or the turn of the 19th to the 20th century when women's suffrage was gaining momentum, when labor unions were becoming a real thing. Um, I will put a link to the article that I'm quoting from in the show notes, uh, but a direct quote is that during the first wave, utopians, feminists, and anarchists advocated consensual non-monogamy as a cure for everything from capitalist oppression to men's tyrannical ownership of women which is actually a lot more political than I think the current polyamory movement really is. (laughs) Like, sure, there's utopians, feminists, and anarchists in our ranks, but we are not all, like, militant anarchists or anything. Except for you, Lenny. I mean, speak for yourself, yeah. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) You say that like it's a bad thing. I wouldn't say I'm, like, militant. I definitely say that I'm a radical abolitionist, but, you know, maybe not militant. That's hot. Um, I do always have to remind myself that these rules are made up. Like somebody out there just said, this is how it's going to be. And then spawned communities that would uphold these rules long after they were dead. And normativity isn't necessarily normal. It's just somebody is upholding what somebody said was normal one time, like heteronormative or white normative. So if there's no one out there upholding these rules for everyone, then normal could really just be anything. And what that comes down to is making the benefits offered to those who are married available to just all people, for one. Uh, And to be clear, and to reemphasize what Lindsay said earlier, I don't want to take rights away from people. 
I want all people to have access to the same rights regardless of what life path they're on. And you should be able to decide what your relationship looks like and that should be okay for you. Uh, if you want to be in a monogamous relationship, then totally do that. But don't frown on others for not adhering to your normal. Because mm -hmm. like I said, there is no such thing. Not really. Yes. Uh, when you really break it down. And so don't keep people from having the same benefits or, you know, for not making the same choices as you. Yeah. Don't yuck someone's yum. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> exactly. this is no, that is a way better way to say all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is something that I have come across again and again and again in my own research and in other people's research and like just learning the things that I have learned about human sexuality um, over the years in my line of work like there literally is no normal people are so wildly different from human being to human being like even though we say that like gender is on a spectrum and kinkiness is on a spectrum and your you know relationship preference is on a spectrum like there is a spectrum, but to say that one thing is more extreme than another in some way or another is almost like you almost can't even compare. And a spectrum implies that there is a middle normal ground, which usually is, you know, heterosexual and white and male. But uh... <laughs> wait, are you making fun of me? <laughs> I take exception to that. <laughs> um. But there is no, there should, in a utopian society, <laughs> there wouldn't be uh, a default for these right. things. One thing that I believe was probably so dangerous and scary to colonizing forces in the Americas was the fact that in, I don't, I don't know if I should apply this to modern poly situations because they tend to be probably different but like I, I think in a non-monogamous polygamous type of setup where you have what you were calling a kinship group as opposed to a nuclear family mm -hmm. gender roles become much less relevant when you have mm -hmm. a group of people and that are all different and this is what brought this idea up to me like in a group of people you may have several people with penises and several people with vulvas and probably some intersex people thrown in there who, you know, have like different setups than others. Like it becomes much less relevant who is playing the male gender role and who's playing the female gender role because you have a group of people that all have different talents, interests, and abilities. And I feel like in a group like that, you're not subjugating your women probably as mm -hmm. much as colonizers in the United States wanted to subjugate their women. One thing that I often see in modern poly setups is, you know, people who are not necessarily into super codified gender roles as the dominant culture prefers them. That's certainly not always the case, but you know, everyone um, has their own way of expressing themselves, their own way of being, the things that they're good at and the things that they like. And I find that within a polycule situation, you often have people who are not super interested in being very masculine or feminine, but are more interested in finding a group that works well together. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely, I see that as a beautiful possibility. Um, and I am sure that when, you know, like mustachioed white dudes, like it came across, you know, 
polygamous groups of natives when they landed in america they were like dear lord their women are all <laughs> over the place they're doing everything this is terrifying we've got to stop it i actually have letters that say almost that verbatim <laughs> like okay now maybe not verbatim but like there are several letters from people who are colonists who came across indigenous cultures who basically said exactly that <laughs> So me just totally making fun of like old white dudes actually is on point. I'm glad to yeah. hear that. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, so one thing that I discovered, let me see if I can find this little nugget um, in my research here, is that uh, generally speaking, um, polyamory in in the current cultural situation is not generally religiously based, but that among, among polyamorous people who do have religious leanings, pagans are the most likely to be poly. Yeah, I read that group. too. I think that's awesome. <laughs> I know, I think that's great too. As a practicing pagan, it makes sense to me. Um, I, I don't know what the what the thing about pagans is necessarily that makes us more drawn to polyamory, but uh, I think it's interesting. And it might just be like part of, I mean, most people who are pagan today in America came to paganism more or less on their own. There aren't that many of us that were like raised pagan by our parents. Um, although those people are totally out there and your parents are probably pretty cool. Um, <laughs> but you know, most of us were raised within the, the Judeo-Christian like culture and then came to paganism on our own. So there's probably some measure of like rejecting what the dominant culture tells us to be that brings us to paganism. And then also is like, oh, hey, by the way, you don't have to be monogamous if you don't want to. Um, so I can see those things going together. Oh um, yeah. Well, once you start breaking down like, you know, rules on one thing, the rest of them kind of become easier to like see through and be like oh <laughs> uh, I was not raised a uh, Christian at all everything I learned about Christianity I learned from horror films which is as a Native American <laughs> like exactly opposite of what everyone else tells me they're like oh everything I learned about Natives I learned from horror films like ancient Indian burial grounds ha huh? but uh <sighs> no it's like the exact opposite from me uh, everything I learned about Christianity, I learned from horror films. <laughs> I mean, that tracks. That tracks. I would love to have a whole conversation about that sometime. Because um, <laughs> I always, I have so many questions about like why it's always Christianity and horror films. And I have a lot of theories. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's always Native Americans too. I'm writing a whole mm -hmm. book on that as we speak. <laughs> I mean, but, but all, um, all of North America is an ancient Indian burial ground. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> every horror film um, made here makes sense and specifically walmart's look at walmart's and sacred sites uh specifically my episode <gasps> on social justice weirdos about that <laughs> and uh yeah there is a big thing about that and highways highways yeah football fields you know stuff like that are actually built on sacred sites where there were protesters and things like that uh, the wall trump's wall who's built oh across God. the sacred yes. site. Mm -hmm. And pipelines, so, they're always going through sacred sites. Yep. Why not? <laughs> so, yeah. Ugh, gross. Um, I also, I think that you had told me when we were discussing doing this episode that um, 
modern non-monogamous folks tend to be more highly educated? Yeah, there is um, an article that I was reading about um, actually <laughs> like the intersection of polyamory and paganism and education levels, mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Huh, well, I don't like to tout level of education as any kind of like metric of worthiness of anything because right. education, especially in America is not, it is not democratic. It is not easy to just get your education. 100%. Um, but I, I do like to think that there is something about, you know, like the more you learn about the world, the more you examine yourself and, and what works for you and the more likely you are to then seek out the things that, that work for you, um, whether you were taught that they were okay or not. There's probably something there. Yeah. Um, I think looking at like the laws and rules that are set before you and then seeing who's upholding them is really a big like um, way to distinguish what's um, real and what's what's right. just being upheld because somebody said it one time and then wrote it into law yeah 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 and that was like a little um nugget that I came across is that in areas where polygamy is not legal so mostly western cultures polyamory is much more common and the interesting caveat there is that most places where polygamy is legal it is understood that that means polygyny with an n uh, g-y-n-y meaning one male and multiple female partners. So hmm. I don't know if there's anywhere in the world that polyandry that where, you know, one female with multiple men is specifically codified as legal in a legal Pretty system. Word. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read that polyamory is most common in Australia, Canada, the United States and Western Europe, all regions with laws that encode equality between women and men and have high rates of female literacy which kind of goes back to the like highly educated part. But it's interesting because in all of these places, polygamy is not legal because in legal setups, usually polygamy equals one man having multiple female partners. In places where women are given legal equality with men and where they're, it is not permitted to for one man to sort of lord over multiple women, women who are literate and educated and often pagan desire to have multiple partners when given their druthers. I'm not sure that that's like a one-to-one -one ratio. I'm making some, some logical leaps there, but I do mm -hmm. think that it's interesting that in societies where like it is codified into law that women are supposed to be equal with men, that you see more polyamorous relationships, which goes back to what I was saying, that we're supposed to be slutty. <laughs> that's all <laughs> yeah that's all I have to say about that I think that makes sense all right well that about does it for this episode folks uh we have talked your ear off about ethical non-monogamy and what it means to us and in the world and I hope that you found something in here that speaks to you in some way or at the very least that you learned a little bit more about you know relationship structures that don't look like what you tend to see on tv and we coined a new term in this one. We coined power cule. I love so, Yeah, I add that to your lexicon and attribute it to us. Yes. <laughs> Link here. <laughs> what is our next 
episode about? Our next episode, we are going to dive into beauty standards and body image. This is going to be a big one, I think. Um, It's probably going to be similar to this episode where we introduce like a really big idea and then come up with a few splinter episodes that we'll have to record about more uh, specific topics later on because beauty standards and body image is a massive topic. Throughout our first season, uh, we started getting a lot of people asking us to do episodes on different topics. And so if you have something um, that you would like to hear about, send it to us and we very well may add it to our um, list of future episodes. So. Yeah. Um, and at this point, we are fully functional on social media. So you can tweet us, you can Facebook us, you can even hit us up on Instagram, whatever your preference is. Uh, we are available on all of these platforms now. Yeah. And you listen to us on any of your favorite podcast um, things, which you're obviously doing right now. But uh, <laughs> starting this week, we'll also have a website up where you can contact us through there as well. Yes, ourgasm.com is going to be up and running when this goes live. And hey, you may be listening on one podcatcher right now, but we encourage you to open up every single podcatcher available to you and listen to our episodes on all of those to give us as many listens as possible. You don't have to. <laughs> just saying, it'd be really nice if you did. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely refuse to pay for listens, like pay a, like pay for a bot that like gives us listens. I was at a conference uh, not long ago and somebody had like tons of views and I was like, well, how do you do that? And they're like, oh yeah, I just pay a bot. And I was like, that is so unethical. <laughs> you gotta uh, game the system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, I feel like I do this for real people and not bots. So <laughs> yeah. Um but thank you all so much for listening, whether you're doing it on one podcatcher or multiple. We very much appreciate. And yeah, send us feedback. Let us know what you're thinking about the stuff we're talking about and the stuff that you want to hear us talk about because we love talking. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We really do. <laughs> all right. That's it for this week. Come back next week to hear us discuss beauty standards and body image. Let our love be a flame, not an ember. Say it's me that you want to dismember. Blacken my eye, set fire to my tie as we dance to the masochism tango. At your command, before you here I stand, my heart is in my hand. Ugh. It's here that I must be. My heart entreats. Just hear those savage beats. And go put on your cleats and come and trample me. Your heart is hard as stone or mahogany. That's why I'm in such exquisite agony. My soul is on fire. It's aflame with desire. Which is why I perspire when we tango. You caught my nose in your left castanet, love. I can feel the pain yet, love, every time I hear drums. And I 
you held in your teeth, love, with the thorns underneath, love, sticking into your gums. Your eyes cast a spell that bewitches the last time I needed 20 stitches to sew up the gash that you made with your lash as we dance to the masochism tango. Bash in my brain and make me scream with pain, then kick me once again and say we'll never part. I know too well I'm underneath your spell, so darling if you smell something burning it's my heart. Excuse me. Take your cigarette from its holder and burn your initials in my shoulder. Fracture my spine and swear that you're mine as we dance to the massacre. Gizm Tango.